Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, as always, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And I'm joined again by my um, co-host, um, one of the Jude 3 Project team members and board members, Dr. Cam... Uh, not, not, not yet. Cameron Triggs. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Appreciate it. <laughs> and today we're joined um, by a special guest, Dr. Keith, uh, Peter Williams from the UK. Um, welcome, Dr. Williams. It's great to be with you. <laughs> if you would, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I was brought up in the UK. I've lived there all my life. I'm 45. I'm uh, married to Catherine. I've got two wonderful children of 14 and 10. And uh, I have the privilege of leading an institution entirely devoted to the study of the Bible called Tindo House, which is uh, one of the finest libraries in the world on the Bible. And it's just full of people researching the Bible. Awesome. That's awesome. That sounds fun for uh, a former seminary student like me. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that's uh, something that uh, Cam is interested in as well. Yeah, definitely am. <laughs> Dr. Williams, our, our topic today is the Old Testament. And uh, we want to really give an apologetic for Christians to trust on the reliability of the old testament but just want to ask some general questions uh just to kind of get our feet wet and get our our listeners who may not be up to speed on the discussion uh the first one is are the old testament scriptures trustworthy if so why yes i think that the old testament scriptures are trustworthy uh and i think there are many different ways to come to that conclusion so you might conclude that they're trustworthy because someone trustworthy told you you know your your mama told you they were trustworthy and she was always right um mm. but there are archaeological reasons you can give also uh, for the bible uh, the old testament being trustworthy for instance um the old testament describes all sorts of things about the assyrians and babylonians and all of those things were written and handed down over the years and yet it's only in the last 200 years that the language of the Assyrians and Babylonians has been deciphered. And what we find out is when those languages were deciphered, when archaeology began just in the last 200 years, people find actually um, the various things said in, in the Bible uh, about there being a king called Sennacherib and him besieging Jerusalem. Those are things that are confirmed in archaeology. And that's remarkable because basically it means that things that were handed down um, in the Middle Ages by scribes who knew Hebrew but not Assyrian or scribes who knew Latin and, and no other language, they were handing down correct information. And you've got to remember that uh, in the Middle Ages, people didn't necessarily know a lot of other languages and they certainly had no access to archaeology. So if they're getting things right, it's only because uh, they're copying correctly and the people before them have been copying the Bible correctly. Um, I mean, I, I could say a bit more because, I mean, th there are so many different arguments you could use. You could use an argument from internal evidence of um, lack of bias. When you go to the Assyrian monuments and the Egyptian monuments, they'll all be telling you how great the kings are who put them up. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that's pretty clear when you look at the Book of Kings in the Old Testament is it's not royal propaganda telling you how good the kings are. Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't know any national literature that uh, says as much negative about the people group it comes from as the Old Testament. So I think that that might cause you to trust it. Or you could have an argument from prophecy. Um, other people have made that where they say, really, um, many parts of the Old Testament look very much like the life of Jesus, and yet they really were written beforehand. Um, so it's these things coming together. It's not just one argument. Um, you could also say what, what it teaches us about uh, humans and our sinfulness is something that we experience to be true. So there are, there are many different ways you could come to trust the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point you made about um, just looking at the, the the books of Kings and also even, you know, looking at David talk about himself and exposing um, the horrendous uh, parts of his himself um, speaks to the validity of it. Um, because like you said, most nations wouldn't tell uh, th- their sinfulness. They would only highlight the, their goodness. So um, I think that's an excellent point and something we could look at and, and say, man, this book is really something that can be trusted. In relationship to the in another follow-up question, how should Christians relate to the Old Testament laws? Because I know that's something that many Christians struggle with uh, because there's so many uh, ones we don't we're, we don't follow anymore. Um, so mm-hmm. how should um, Christians relate to the New Testament laws? The Old Testament laws. Well, Old um, Testament laws, I'm sorry. There are several things to say. Firstly, of course, that um, the laws in the Old Testament are presented as coming from God. Um, so in, in that sense, they're good. But then that doesn't mean that they're necessarily the best, because when Jesus is asked about divorce in Matthew chapter 19, he says Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. So in other words, he says, um, ideally, a different law would have been written. But, you know, that the people were so stubborn that that was the law that was given. So God, when he judges what law to give, one of the things he is taking into account is people's sinfulness and what law um, is possible in that situation. Um, So I think what you've got to do to understand the Old Testament is what Jesus did. He goes back to the beginning and says, in the beginning, God made them male and female um, and and there wasn't divorce. And so let's say I look at the Old Testament law on um, which seems to allow people to have slaves. Well, one of the things I've got to understand is that in the beginning, it wasn't like that. So I'm applying exactly the same principle that Jesus uses. Or I could look at the Old Testament law, sometimes governing people and wife. Well, again, the way Jesus would say is you've got to get back to the beginning and realize in the beginning, it wasn't like that. So that means that sometimes what I see in the law is a compromise. Um, Because people are so stubborn... Um, God allowed things that if people weren't sinful he wouldn't be allowing Um, and you've also got to see it as sometimes temporary measures so it's a bit like um, sometimes you might have in a state in the US laws regulating gambling now the fact that you have laws regulating gambling doesn't mean the people who wrote the laws think that gambling's at all good they may think it's terrible but they're just regulating they're constraining it somewhat Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the Bible presents the laws as given to Israel at a particular time for a particular purpose. So um, God wants to have one nation and to use them to speak to the whole world. And so he gives them laws. And some of those laws don't apply uh, to us because the purpose has actually been fulfilled. So a law 
telling them that they need to separate from all the other peoples and need to have special clothes um, to make them look different, that's already been um, fulfilled. They, they've done their job. Uh, and so I, I think there are all sorts of laws which are valid for then and we can learn principles from them, but we don't apply directly today. There are some other laws which I think do apply directly today. I think it's, uh, it's not a good idea to marry your mother. That's in the Old Testament laws, and it's. Uh, I think it applies today too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. <laughs> That's very helpful, uh, Doctor Williams. Just asking a, a, another question that is kind of basics in understanding the Old Testament, and you sort of touched on it in your last explanation. But more explicitly, what are some general guidelines for interpreting the Old Testament? Well, I, I love the passage in Luke chapter 24 when um, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus after he's raised from the dead, meets with these two disciples who don't yet know it's Jesus. And he explains to them that the whole Old Testament is about himself. And just to think of um, the Old Testament as about Jesus, I think is very helpful to realize it's pointing forward to um, him. And that changes how how you look at things because what you can see is that the Old Testament is full of pictures of Jesus and sometimes pictures by contrast because if Jesus is really amazing and excellent then no picture one picture is ever going to be good enough so the priest is a bit of a picture of Jesus but the problem is priests keep on dying and needing to be replaced um, that's what Hebrews tells us uh, and so Jesus is is better than the priests and David's a bit of a picture of Jesus you know he's a shepherd and he's a king but then, you know, he falls pretty far short, adultery of Bathsheba and so on. So the picture fails. And so you have lots and lots of pictures in the Old Testament of things failing. Um, or you could say, how does God deal with sin? Well, casting people out of the garden, wiping people out with a flood, confusing their language, choosing a person, Abraham, choosing a nation, Israel, giving them laws, um, giving them... Uh, small government in the judges, giving them big government in the kings, giving them prophets to call them back to God, sending them to exile, none of those things actually deal with sin. And so one of the things that the Old Testament is showing us is, uh, as we get in the prophets towards the end, is God says, you know what? I better come in and sort out this mess. Um, So, you know, God can privilege and he can do all sorts of things, but human sin is so deep that the only way to deal with it is actually for Christ himself to come. And so to see the Old Testament preparing that message is important. That's definitely helpful. Um, one of the issues that people have with the new, um, the, the Old Testament in this day um, is that people see God as um, a moral monster in a sense. Um, he commands um, the destruction of nations Um how can how can a loving God who tells us not to shed innocent blood um, be the same God that commands um, genocide in in it seems like genocide in the mm. Old Testament? Okay. Well, I think there are lots of things that need to be said for this, and and um, an analogy I sometimes give is I don't know whether you've ever played the the game let me out it's one of those games where you have to move around a few blocks before you can get one of the blocks out um you sometimes have to do a bit of a puzzle and so i think that we've got to um, move around a few pieces in people's minds before you can actually answer this 
So it's not just one single answer that will do. So one of the starting points people may have is that good people don't take innocent people's lives. You know, if that's their starting point. And that's a good starting point most of the time, but actually doesn't work some of the time. So to give you an example, at 9-11, the terrible attacks there, um, there were actually two F-16 pilots who were scrambled and they had as their task to take down planes that were being used as missiles. Now, they didn't actually get to any of them, but um, they would have been prepared to take down planes which actually contained innocent civilians because they were seeking to save more innocent civilians' lives by doing so. And no one questions the good intentions of those people. So a lot comes down to intention. Um, most people read the Harry Potter stories and come, come away uh, thinking that Dumbledore's really quite a nice guy, uh, even though it's his intention that Harry should give up his life. Um, because you know that on the whole, um, Dumbledore doesn't like people to die. Um, now, I think that God in the Old Testament is good. He doesn't like people to die. He, he gave life in the first place. He loves life. And I think it's consistent with that char uh, character that someone loves life that sometimes in extreme circumstances they should uh, take life away and I think this, that what we have in the Old Testament in the situation of the Canaanites is an extreme circumstance um, here you got uh, in the Old Testament the Canaanites are killing their own children sacrificing them to other gods and they are given um, time to put things right um, when Joshua arrives in the promised land um, the people in the land of Canaan know the amazing miracles God has done it, uh, Rahab the prostitute says we know the amazing miracles uh, that he's done actually everyone in the land knows that and there are three occurrences in the book of Joshua where it says that and yet they've decided they're going to resist and they're going to fight against God and the fact that Rahab knows what God has done and knows that she should change sides means I think everyone knew that they should have changed sides so those are some factors um, that need to be thought about. I've actually got a list of 20 different things that you th need to think about that <laughs> make this different from um, the passages or the things people think about nowadays when they, they think about genocide, say, in Rwanda and so on, um, that really make it very different. Dr. Williams, uh, another uh, topic that's really debated even amongst certain evangelicals is did God command them to kill women and children in the Old Testament um, example the destruction of the Canaanites yeah and I, I think the answer is yes he did I mean the, the Old Testament passage seems uh, pretty clear um, that this went on both with um, Saul in 1 Samuel 15 but also it's there in Deuteronomy and Joshua and again the argument could be well how can a good God command that and that, that can take a little bit of explanation, but I'll try and do it. So again, if we think about these F-16 pilots um, who were woke up in the morning wanting to do a good job and an extreme thing happened and they scrambled their jets and uh, they're, they're called Mark Sassville and Heather Penny, the two pilots. Um, they realized that they were going to have to try and take down planes. They did not have they weren't armed. And so they were going to have to ram the planes if uh, they didn't actually get to carry it out. But but that was um, what they intended to do. There were women and children on board those planes. Um, 
Now, does that mean that those two people should suffer court martial or be put in prison because of their terrible intention? No, I think those people had good intentions. Their intention was to save life. So the question is, is it possible that a figure who generally wants to save life should give a command which involves the taking away of lives of um, non-combatants, you know, people who aren't fighting? And the answer is yes. So God um, is different from us because he knows everything in the future. Now, what's right for us to do does depend on one of the limits is what we know. So there are all sorts of things that might be okay for me to do if I knew everything about the future that aren't okay for me to do because I don't. So God could look at the situation and he might know that if he allows uh, the children to live, that they're going to get up and avenge their their parents and there's going to be a cycle of violence that he can calculate is going to go on for 397 years, is going to cost so many different lives. And he, he looks at the situation and says, actually, this thing, this thing that I'm commanding is going to cost less life. Now, I'm not saying he did do that calculation. I'm just saying I'm prepared to trust that he's good uh, because there's lots of ever, other evidence that he is good. Um, and therefore, this thing where he is commanding the taking away of life of non-combatants has got to be weighed against that. So. Again, if I can go back to the Harry Potter analogy, I mean, I don't really, you know, the books well, but a lot of people do. And there are some really suspicious things that you could say that the headmaster there, Dumbledore, does. Um, and there seems to be real evidence against him. And you look and you judge his character to be bad when you underestimate his ability to calculate the future. When you recognize he actually is a bit more intelligent than that, you recognize his intentions are good. Does that make any sense? Um, yes. So it's basically saying with the information he has, it's a, ne a necessary move because it it's for the greater good. Yeah, I, I, I need to say a few more things because obviously, and this is where I, I need to sort of lay out all 20 arguments, if you like. But <laughs> let's let's give another argument. Um, God gave life in the first place. So for him to take life is different from for us to take life. So it's a bit like if someone takes my car without my permission, they're stealing it. Um, if I give them my keys and say they can take it, they can take it. So the morality of taking something depends on uh, whether you're authorized. Now, it's wrong for us to take someone's life because their life doesn't belong to us. But all life does belong to God and all life is going to end sometime. So for him to... Um, take away someone's life is different from for anyone else or for him to order it. Now, a lot of people get worried when you say, well, he commands the ordering of uh, taking away of life because they say, well, that's a bit like the terrorists. They think they've got God on their side, uh, you know, when they do that. And I'd say it's not at all like that for many reasons. I'm just going to give you one. Um, the terrorists simply have an idea in their head that they're doing this on God's behalf. In the Old Testament, God speaks to Israel with the biggest, amazing, super display of miracles in the entire history uh, of the Old Testament. He does it at the time of the Exodus. He appears to them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and he speaks to 603,550 men 
in a booming voice from the top of Mount Sinai. That's, that's what the story says. Now, you might not believe the story, but that's how the story goes. What that means is that God's voice is more authenticated in that story than anything you can think of today. Biggest sports match would not have that many people in. The most watched wedding in the world was William and Kate uh, over here in England, and yet there weren't that many eyewitnesses actually who saw it. Lots of people saw it on screens. So what it's claiming is that this is um, the command that um, God gave, the Ten Commandments and, and those sort of things, were more authenticated versions, uh, uh, instances of God speaking than anything you can think of. So it's not just someone's opinion that God said do this, it's actually something that's verifiable. So that's just one of many things that sets it apart from um, uh, the terrorists who are picking on random people, with, um, uh, whereas God has actually got a, a, a purpose. He gives the people real warning. Everyone in the land of Canaan knew about God's miraculous deeds. That's what Rahab says. That's what the Gibeonites say. And that's what it says at the beginning of Joshua chapter 5. So you've got three instances where it's very clearly said the people in the land knew what was coming and they decided they were going to put up a fight against Almighty God. Um, so all of those things have to be weighed in that just make it very different from the situations people talk about today. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. would, would you say that, would that present a challenge for, for us um, as Christians when defending the faith? If we frame it like that to say that God is not subject to his own law? Um, I don't think, I think what I'd say is it's not that the law is above God and so he's constrained by it, mm -hmm. nor is the law so below God that it's just arbitrary and he can decide, uh, you know, whatever he likes to be law. Rather, the law is an expression of his character. So let's put it this way. When I say God's good, I'm not just saying he calls things good and that makes them good. What I'd say is God is a God who loves to give life more than to take it away. And the reason why is because he's the living God. He's the source of life. It's who he is. So for him to want to give life more than take it away is the way he is. And he can't change that because even though God's omnipotent, that doesn't mean he can do everything. It means he can do everything consistent with his powerful character. So he can't lie and he can't make a God bigger than himself and he can't make himself not exist for five seconds. There's an infinite number of things God can't do, you know, mm -hmm. um, and people often don't think about that because they've misdefined om omnipotence. So what it means is God will only act in a way which in his bigger purposes is to give life rather than take it away. That's his, always his bigger picture. So I don't think that God would command anything like we have in the book of Joshua unless his bigger intention is to give more life than life is being taken. Mm. So in that sense, I think it's the same as the F-16 pilots. They wouldn't do or even try to do what they were trying to do, you know, to take down planes unless their bigger intention was that more life should be saved. Mm-hmm. So that, I, I can't prove that of God, but I can trust it of God. Gotcha. And, you know, I think there are many other things we need to um, uh, think about in terms of just all of the evidence we have of, of God in the Old Testament being good and how the Old Testament is leading through to a point where um, 
Israel is actually they are also kicked out of the land when they do the same things as the Canaanites um, you know the Assyrians and the Babylonians uh, kick them out so in a sense it's it's um, God, God's very fair fair in this but actually Israel ultimately is becoming a light for the nations and the good news is going to go out to all the nations uh, so you get books that are very clear about that book of Isaiah you might call it Isaiah um, very clear on those sort of things that there's going to be a blessing to all nations or as it says in Genesis chapter 12 God says to Abraham in you all the families of the earth will be blessed so you've got to see the bigger picture of what God is you know seeking to do mm -hmm. and I think one of the uh, necessary questions uh, as we build a foundation um, with these kinds of questions that come up in the Old Testament is really defining right and wrong and really defining what is good um, because yeah. if we don't have a real solid definition of right and wrong or what is good or um, what is what God defines as good, um, it can be problematic because our in our society today, goodness and right or wrong can be based on it is as, as a, on a relative scale. But when they yeah. when they come to the Old Testament, they seem to have objective truth that they um then they become an advocate for objective truth um, yeah. when it when it fits them. So I think, how would you say we should define um, right and wrong in relationship to the Old Testament? So what I think is that that what God says is right is right. But if you just hear that sentence, you might think uh, that means he can define anything as right and wrong. And the answer is he can't because he's a good character, and so that's going to constrain. Um, him, he's, he's going to be consistent with his character. So um, God sometimes tells people to do some weird things. I mean, in, in Genesis chapter 22, he tells Abraham to offer his son Isaac. Now, a lot of people read that and they think, wow, that's, you know, him telling him to murder him. Uh, that's just like the terrorists. Now, hang on, let's read the story a bit more slowly. You've got to remember that God's given a load of promises to Abraham that through Isaac, he's going to have loads of offspring that are going to fill the earth. So that means he knows whatever he does, plunging a knife into Isaac, um, Isaac's going to keep living somehow and have more kids. So if you read it as an atheist, you think the only thing that Isaac has is his life and Abraham's just been commanded to take it away. Um, whereas if you read it as someone who doesn't think that death is the end of things, um, because you're in a supernatural universe you realize it's different and of course God speaks to him and calls it off but he did want him to um, obey so what does that mean for us today should we um, obey voices in our heads you know that make us um, want to do crazy things the answer is absolutely not um, but Abraham wasn't obeying some crazy voice in his head he actually met, met God before God had done miracles for him he knew this was from God and God tested him and and the the great thing is we now from the New Testament perspective we sit here in a situation where we can see actually what he did was a picture and a foreshadowing of Jesus going to the cross as God offered up his own son and that was a really important foreshadowing to have and we can also say well the great news is we know that we're never going to be asked by God to make that picture again because the real thing has arrived the real Jesus has come given up his life for us so we know God's not going to ask us to do that 
So I think we need to follow God, but we need to realize that God speaks to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ authenticates the Old Testament and says he's setting up the team to write the New Testament, you know, the apostles and so on. Um, so I can't detach trusting Christ from trusting um, the written word of God in the Bible. Amen. Dr. Williams, that's really good. A scripture that came to mind uh, concerning Abraham is Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. Uh -huh. says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his only uh, son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And verse 19 uh, confirms what you said. Abraham reasoned that God could even yeah. raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Yeah. That's very important. Yeah. The Bible often defends itself and clarifies um, a lot of the presuppositions that we have. Um, so I appreciate that answer. That was great. Yeah. Uh, another question I have that's, uh, you know, uh, very particular, especially in African-American context, is does the Old Testament condone slavery? And mm -hmm. yes or no, and maybe even you could discuss some of the differences or similarities between slavery in the Old Testament and what we might think of here as Americans. Yeah, so firstly, I, I think that taking the big picture that the, the Bible, uh, including the Old Testament, uh, opposed slavery uh, as it took place, you know, in the, the North American context. Uh, you know, it's the greatest uh, shame in North American history. And of course, the the British and the French were very involved uh, as well in, in the whole trade. And I think um, it does that in many ways. You could start at the beginning where no human owns another human. Uh, that's the pattern you have in the beginning. Now, some people look at the Old Testament and they say, well, you know, didn't they have slaves uh, back then? Well, you've got to remember that if you read an older Bible translation, it hardly uses the word slave at all. So the word slave is is more common in some of the more recent Bible translations. But it seems to me that what we have in the Old Testament is not the same as uh, chain gangs in the cotton fields. You think of Abraham, he's got a servant that he trusts so much, he's going to send him off with 10 camels and a load of wealth on a hundreds of mile journey to find a wife for um, Isaac. Well, you know, if that person was being ill-treated, then you know, he's got a great chance to do a runner. Abraham arms all of his servants. Um, again, generally people in slave cultures don't arm their servants. People look at parts of the law and they say, well, it looks to me like there is something uh, close to slavery going on in Leviticus 25 and Exodus uh, 21. And I don't deny that. But what I would say is that one of the uh, things you, you've got to remember is, again, the principle of how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament law. Jesus, when he was asked about divorce uh, in Matthew 19, he said, in the beginning, it wasn't like that. And so I would see what you have where you've got rules in the law regulating what people do with their servants is that um, what it's doing is it's not saying this is good. But it's trying to limit um, bad. So what you don't see is people um, in chains in the Old Testament. You don't see um, if someone knocks someone's tooth out, um, they have to let them go free of obligation. There's a further thing you've got to throw into it. 
which is back then you're in uh, economic subsistence society. So there's often no surplus and people can starve and so on. Now, if uh, you've got that situation where you are really, really poor and you've got nothing you can um, work, no, no, no way of living. What you might do is you might sell your future work to someone else. So rather than having slave markets, there's no reference to slave markets in the Old Testament, you know, Abraham going out and buying some people like that. What I think people did do is they sometimes said, you know, I'll give you seven years work if you will look after me. So it's what we might call debt slavery, which is different from the basic kidnap from West Africa, <laughs> you know, drag people over the Atlantic, you know, in conditions that we wouldn't allow animals to be transported in today. You know, it's so, so I, I think we're dealing with very different things. Um, and that um, what we can't see is the, the Old Testament is, it, it's not supporting um, that sort of, um, slavery that you know is in north america in, in the um 19th century now i've got no problem with um people being forced to labor if they're doing a life sentence for rape or murder i've got no problem with um a country doing a draft or conscription of soldiers to preserve its freedom so i, I don't think that christians oppose all compulsory labor but it's got to be just compulsory labor, not just to suit the whims of some rich guy. Does that make sense? No, that's very good. That's very good. And I appreciate uh, just uh, the way that you handle it. Just uh, sometimes we don't acknowledge the history that why mm -hmm. people may struggle with that question. And it's uh, very important for us to understand uh, that those who have, you know, gone through the civil rights movement or gone through certain racism and prejudice, when they see that word slave, they have automatic uh, connotations that they that they bring to the text. And to realize that those are actual different institutions is very helpful. Yeah. And I think you know, the word slave tends to be a very historically particular term. So you've got to remember that at the time when the Old Testament was written, the North American slavery hadn't happened. So we mustn't read any of that later stuff back into the text. And I think it's your 13th Amendment, isn't it, that abolishes slavery. Is that right in, in the US? I'm not very, I don't know my amendments very well because I'm a Brit. But uh, <laughs> the, the, it, when it abolished it, it, it didn't include that um, slavery for a crime. Uh, it was actually still allowed. And I think that's a very interesting thing because it basically comes back to the issue of justice. Um, you know, what went on in the North Atlantic slave trade was just a manifest, um, one of the worst injustices I can think of, you know, where people, uh, British and, and French traders make West Africans addicted to rum. And so they sell on their compatriots, you know, uh, on this uh, terrible journey. And, you know, people are treated in such an evil way. And I think uh, it's easy to start reading this sort of stuff back into the Old Testament when it's simply not there. And even with the New Testament, people say, well, why didn't the New Testament masters, why doesn't Paul write to masters and say, free your slaves? But you've got to remember, Roman slavery is different from uh, other slaveries as well. And it wasn't actually legally possible for them to free all of their slaves. There were numerical limits on how many slaves any master could free. If they had 30 slaves, they could only free 10 of them. Mm. You know, so there were... 
and, and often people don't know that because they, they just think that each society is the same that's very helpful uh, I, I definitely didn't know that and and someone was just act, um, asked me last week about um, of, as w- we were reading through uh, the scriptures was slavery the same as the, the slavery African Americans experienced and I said it was it was um, it was a completely different kind of trying to explain it like you explained it, but it's definitely helpful to know that there were also limits on um, freeing slaves um, in the in Roman slavery. So I think that's helpful information um, that we can use um, when we're when we're discussing these hard issues. Um, I think there's a lot more also you, you could do. Now, I haven't done a lot of the study of what went on in North America. But it seems to me there's a lot of variety as well that needs to be looked at. And um, I think you probably can make a pretty strong correlation that the more people were wanting to follow the scriptures, the more they were opposed to um, slavery. Um, And even those, you know, white Christians who didn't uh, oppose slavery like they should have done. um, What you can say is quite a few of them opposed the worst forms of slavery. I'm not trying to excuse them. I'm just trying to say, you know, when you look back in history, you can find a lot more complexity going on uh, and that, um, you know, we've got to remember that. I think the more people follow the Bible, the more they'll be opposed to slavery. Amen. Um, What are, when we're looking at the Old Testament, what are the, what are the the uh, passages that uh, you believe Christians should be aware of that are are problematic because a lot of times people are caught off guard when they're dealing with uh, critics and and people that try to disprove scripture um, what are the the passages that you find that are the most uh, complex and troublesome well one of the things is that actually what are problem passages vary from culture to culture and time to time so one of the things that some old Jews used to find really problematic was um, a uh, passage in Genesis where it says that the Lord stood before Abraham uh, and uh, they didn't like that at all because you know it should be Abraham standing before the Lord and so what you find is that um, people different cultures find different things problematic Um, (laughs) So a lot of the thing we've got to do is just question some of the the presuppositions we get from our culture. Um, So I, on the whole, don't find the um, text with violence in the Old Testament as problematic as some people, because I think I've got assimilations that work for them all. So what I puzzle more about is how one text fits together with another text. But that doesn't make me dis despair because it's a bit like a puzzle you get at Christmas you've been playing with a puzzle for an hour and just because you can't do it doesn't mean it can't be done so I may have been playing around with a couple of texts in the Bible and wondering how they fit together the fact that I haven't yet found a way to fit them together doesn't mean they can't it can't be done thank you that's that's definitely helpful um what what is the uh, last word that you want to leave with our listeners this has been a I believe an excellent interview that's going to be helpful. What what would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, what I'd really do is encourage people to read the Bible and not give up when they find problems. Uh, when they find problems, just pray about them, ask friends, 
and also read it a lot in groups. We got a big problem of biblical literacy um, in the West that people, um, it's assumed that everyone reads their Bible in the sense that churches don't tend to read much long sections nowadays because they, they're assuming people are doing it at home. But we know on the whole people aren't doing it at home. And so that means that people just aren't really familiar with the Word of God. And reading it as a whole, if you don't like reading, just listening to it. I mean, Americans spend so long in cars. I mean, so, so you know, it's a great opportunity to listen to uh, it, um, download it and so on. I would say do that just to get really familiar with it and it will be a great blessing to you. Amen. Is there any um, new uh, books or resources that you have out or any way that our listeners can reach you either on social media or website? Well, um, they, they can have a look at the stepbible.org, which is uh, stepbible.org, which is our free Bible software, um, which uh, they can get the English language and then they can click through from that to the original languages of the Bible. So you don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to know what the words are. And um, also they, they can visit tinderhouse.com, which is our website where we've got a few videos and so on. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Williams, for your time. I definitely appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it